0: today's reading is Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, This is what you are to say to the Israelites I am, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel, and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbour and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians.
1: Thanks, Becky. Let's just pray. Father God, you are the Holy God, utterly different, set apart from us. And yet it is our privilege, as it was Moses, to come before you, to hear you speak to us. And we long to know you. Thank you that you long to make yourself known to us. So please, um, teach us now. Open our eyes we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Last week, as we looked at how this great drama of the Exodus opens, we were introduced to two key characters, God's people, the Israelites, who we saw were languishing in a horrible, bitter slavery in Egypt, and God's Redeemer, Moses, who has this uh, pretty remarkable start to life, and then it sort of went pear-shaped a bit at the end of the chapter two. He's he's way far from home, far from his people. He's sort of about eighty years old, and it must have seemed as though all the early promise has, has come to nothing. But now, in this chapter, we're introduced to the main character of the book. He's been offstage so far, out of sight. And this is his grand entrance onto the stage, and it's a very striking entrance. It grabbed Moses' attention, and it's meant to grab our attention too. I think I said last time, that really the the key question that this book of Exodus is, is trying to answer is the question, who is the Lord? Well, here we're introduced to him for the first time. That's an important chapter. To sort of steer our way through it, we're going to divide it in two and we're going to think about God's presence and then God's name, or more particularly, we're going to think about the meaning of God's presence, the meaning of God's name. They're going to be our two headings. So first, the meaning of God's presence, which is sort of verses 1 to 12. As I said, the chapter opens with with Moses, now about 80 years old. He's caring for his father-in-law's flock, which would have been a responsible job back then. He's not looking for God. I think he's just looking for pasture. And he's had to go some way to find it. Far side of the wilderness, we're told in verse 1. in Horeb, the region of Horeb. And there, verse 2, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him. In flames of fire from within a bush, Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. This angel of the Lord is a rather mysterious character that actually has turned up a few times already in the book of Genesis. And it's clear he's not simply an angel, one of the created heavenly beings. He is the physical, visible manifestation of the invisible God. Distinct from God. God is not some fiery bush. And yet Moses quite clearly is in the presence of God. He hears God speaking to him. We refer to the burning bush. But of course the striking thing about it was that it, it wasn't burning actually. There are flames, but the flames aren't being fueled by the bush. This, these flames are self-sustaining. And it's a rather bizarre sight for Moses. He goes over to take a, a closer look. And then even more surprising than a burning bush is that it's a, a talking bush, or so it seemed. Um, it's not the bush speaking. Verse uh, 4, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. The voice knows him. It's the God who has watched over him his whole life, shaped his whole life. Although at this point, Moses doesn't know who this voice belongs to. But then verse 5, the voice says, Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. for The place where you are standing is holy ground. He's in the presence of the holy God, God who identifies himself. Verse 6, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Forty years earlier, Moses had left his family, he left his people, left connection with those stories that his father must have told him as a young boy about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God who had made promises to Abraham's family. Promises to bless them. The God who had again and again showed that he was, would be their God and they would be, uh, he would be with them. And God says to Moses, it's me. I'm here. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. For hundreds of years, it had seemed as though this God was hiding. This God must have seemed as though he was blind and deaf and distant. But no, verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. Literally, I know their suffering. And in the sense is, he has shared in it with them. He has suffered with them. I know your suffering. And so he goes on, verse 8. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I've come down. Moses had instinctively known that God's presence was a fearful thing, an awesome thing. He, he hid his face as soon as he realized who it was. But more than that, Moses was to understand that God being present is an active thing. God is present to act for us, to save, to fulfill his promises. He's, in one sense, present everywhere all the time. But when God says, I have come down, I'm with you, the sense we do understand is that he is actively present. His presence is not like having some lucky charm which we hand around our neck or, or put in our pocket. It's there, it's sort of comforting for us, but doesn't actually do anything, his presence. Now, for God to be present means that he's come to act, he is there to save, he's there to keep his promises. His presence means he's there to save, to bless us. And at this point, Moses might well have said, Great, at last, at last, go for it. All those promises, do it. But God goes up, goes on. Verse 9. Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Can you imagine Moses' reaction? I thought he said you were going to go and, and bring that this people out. They're talking about me. What am I meant to do? But he says, Moses, verse 11, said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I suspect 40 years earlier, Moses might not have answered like that. He might not have been quite so hesitant, but he's a humbler man now. He, he knows his weakness, his inadequacy, And it's striking, God doesn't say, of course you can do it. I've been preparing you for this for 80 years. You're the perfect person to do it. You're an Israelite, and yet you're brought up in the Egyptian court. You know how it works and how it functions. God doesn't say that. He says, yeah, of course you're inadequate, Moses, but I'm not. Verse 12, God says, I will be with you. One of the most precious promises there is in the Bible. And of course, it's given not just to Moses. It's given to every one of us who has come to Christ. God says, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Jesus said, I am with you always, the very end of the age. And if he's with us, his presence is an active presence. It means he's with us as the God God who saves, the God who keeps his promises, the God who blesses. The presence of God is the supreme blessing of this book. It's where the whole book is going to be driving. God would be present in the midst of his people. That's how the book is going to close, the building and the filling of the tabernacle. It's a great blessing. Often we are very aware of our own weakness, our own inadequacies. And some of you may be starting new jobs, starting in a new city, new challenges. You're feeling that at the moment. God's word to you is not you're great. Believe in yourself. You can do it. Now, his promise to us is I will be with you. And there is no more wonderful thing we could hear. It goes on, verse 12, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Essentially, God's saying, you'll see. Trust me. It's a rather bizarre sign. Normally, you'd think the sign would be something that would encourage Moses to, to go forth, encourage what Moses what God would do, but he says that the sign is something you'll be able to see when I've done it for you. Because essentially God is saying, my presence is the guarantee of my promise. My presence is the guarantee of my promise. In fellowship groups this term, we're going to be looking at Peter's second letter. And it's sort of early on, verse 4, the first chapter. He speaks of the very great and precious promises God has given to us. He has given us many wonderful promises. That he will keep us to the end. That no one shall pluck us out of his hand. He'll keep us. In fact, he says, I will keep you from falling. And present you without fault with great joy in, uh, before my glorious presence. It's his presence with us today that is the guarantee of each and every one of his promises. His presence means not one will fail. So what does his presence mean? It's not just a comforting thought. God is with me, like a little rabbit foot or something we we shove in our pocket. He's present, yes, as the holy God, amazingly. He's present as the promise-keeping God, the God who is with us to save us, with us to keep us, with us to bless us. Well, that's the first thing, the meaning of of God's presence. And then secondly, the meaning of God's name, second half of the chapter. We all know names matter. They're very helpful to identify people. It would be very difficult in church life if we weren't allowed to use names. I had to sort of point to the, I'm not going to look anywhere, in particular the slightly bald person or the the, the person sort of, Brownish hair, you know, this sort of. And we, you had to identify, maybe I'd identify people by what they do, their job. Uh, Simon Hutton would be the, on the guitar, would be the tall one, you know, the teacher or whatever. We just, we know, names are really helpful to identify people. More than that, names are key for relationships. One of the first things we share when we want to get to know someone, we share our names. And I would say sorry for the many times I've forgotten the names. And lots of you have to tell me more than once often because I'm not very good at it. But that's a bad thing. Names matter. And they're important for relationships. Said Simon on the guitar, the teacher. So at school, he's called Sir, I, I guess. But not by Rebecca at home. No, not called Sir. And we don't call him Sir here. Sir is when you're relating to someone as a, their job. When you relate to them as a person, it's Simon. In, in Hollywood movies, you know, the US president is always uh, greeted, good morning, Mr. President, Mr. President. If someone were to come in and say good morning, Joe, it'd be striking. That means someone's relating, not because of his office, but there is real relationship. Names imply relationship. Now, I say that because Well, actually, before I say go on, in the Bible, I want to say names have a further significance. Names very often reveal something about the person, what they're like, who they are. They often mean something, uh, and what they mean is significant. There were lots of kids, no doubt, called Jesus in first century Israel. But when Joseph and Mary called their little boy Jesus... They didn't do so because it sounded nice to them. They called him Jesus because of what the name meant. God saves. He's the one who would save his people from their sins. Okay, so but, but names are even more important in the Bible. Now, I say that because in the Bible, God has a name. Sometimes he's just called God or the Lord in, in sort of lowercase letters. That's referring, if you like, to his job, like calling Simon Sir or saying to Joe Biden, Mr. President. But his name, the name he gives to those who know him, is the Lord. It's always in our Bibles written in capital letters, the Lord. In Hebrew, it's just four letters, Y-H-W-H. In the old King James version of the Bible, it was translated Jehovah. I think more likely people think it might have been pronounced Yahweh. That is his name. The name that was used from the earliest times, we're told in Genesis chapter 4, when Adam and Eve's grandson, Enosh, was was alive, at that time, people began to call on the name of Yahweh. Use his name. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Use this name. It's not a new name. So, it's striking. In, In verse 13, Moses asks God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The Lord, uh, sorry, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Now, maybe he'd forgotten the name or didn't know the name. I think more likely what he's saying is, I don't really know what it means. What are you like? What kind of God are you? If I go to the Israelites and say, You've, you've sent me. They're going to ask, tell me about God. What do I say if they ask me what you're like? And God answers Moses' question, but it comes in three stages. It's sort of clearly marked in the original. First thing he says, verse 14, is I am who I am. Then he says in a more abbreviated form, tell them I am has sent me to you. And then verse 15, God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, God of your fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me. That is God's name, the Lord. That's what Moses will sing later in the book on the banks of the Red Sea. The Lord, Yahweh, is his name. So his name is not, I am who I am. That's it seems some of the meaning of the name. If you can read your footnotes, there are other little print. But the Lord sounds like or is related to the Hebrew for uh, I am. So why is he called the Lord? What does this name mean? Well, in part it points the truth, God's saying, I am who I am. Utterly unique self-defining, self-existing, self-sufficient, the God who is, the eternal, unchanging God. That's who I am. That's something of the meaning of the name. And uh, he's telling us something of what what God is like in that. Actually, it it might as easily have been translated, I will be who I am will be. Back in verse 12, when God said to to Moses, I will be with you, it's exactly the same words. I am with you. Although there, it it sort of obviously has a a sort of future sense to it. And I think probably the the future, a future focus is in view throughout, just as the sign God gives in verse 12 is a sort of forward-looking sign. God is saying, if you want to know the kind of God I am, do you want, if you want to know what my name, Yahweh, means, well, you'll see. I'm going to show you what I'm like by what I do. I am what I will be, if you like. It goes on See, so you see, as Yahweh, as the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God who made promises in the past. I'm the God in the present who who watches over you, verse 16, and sees all that you're facing. I'm the God in the future who is going to save you with amazing wonders, with sovereign power and extraordinary grace. That's how I'm going to show you what it means for me to be Yahweh, the Lord. So yes, he's the I am God, that's part of what he's saying, he's not the I might be God, a God we can't really quite be sure of and depend upon or know, no, he is the I am God, he's also the I am what I will be God, he's about to show us what it means for him to be the Lord, and so in the coming years, coming centuries, if you asked any Israelite, what it—who who is Yahweh, who is the Lord? They wouldn't give you a sort of philosophical discourse on the meaning of I am who I am. You ask them, who is the Lord? They'd answer you by telling a story. They'd tell you this story, the story of the Exodus. And for us, if we want to know what God is like, well, actually, what we're going to do this term is is exactly what we need. As we read through Exodus together, we're going to learn what our God is like. It's a rather exciting thing. This is God's explanation of the kind of God he is. And we're going to see he's a God of amazing grace, awesome power, and faithfulness, and holiness. A God who is wonderfully good. A God who reveals himself through his mighty deeds. Centuries later, God would give an even more perfect explanation of who he is. This really is just the trailer for that. In Jesus, God came down, as he says here. And the word who was with God and was God took flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus, remember, proclaimed himself to be the I am. Once when he said that, people took up stones to stone him. It seemed such obvious blasphemy to take that name on his own lips. On another occasion, when they came to arrest him, he spoke of himself as the I am. And they were so awestruck, we told they fell to the ground. Jesus is the eternal God. He said, before Abraham was, I am. The God who came down to reveal himself, to rescue us, to make a covenant with us, and to be with us. To be Emmanuel. The story of the exodus in Nucleus. The God who sees and knows and hears. The God who will never leave us and never forsake us. So if we want to know God, we'll we will never know God by our own musings of the kind of I like to think of God as. Now, he defines himself. I am who I am, he says. But If we want to know what he's like, he says, look what I've done. Look at the exodus. And that's just a trailer for all that I will one day do, has now done in the Lord Jesus. Look at the cross. Look at the empty tomb. Look how I poured out my spirit on my people. Look how one day I will gather them at my holy mountain, not Mount Sinai, but but Mount Zion, to worship me. I am that God, that saving God, he says to us. Let me pray. Father God, thank you that we can know you, and we long to know you better. Please, these coming weeks, help us to to know you better, and help us to marvel more, too, at your presence with us, and all that that means, that you are with us and will be with us unfailingly. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen.